Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yay! Hello! Hello, hello. Oh, my necklace isn't straight. Oh, Sorry. You guys, new season, same antics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan, co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Also co-founder of the Center for Biblical also Unity. Also the other founder. Yes. yes, and welcome to All the Things. This is season five for us. We've been gone for quite a while. Yeah, we uh, ended the season um, at the end of Oct- the end of September, I think. Mm-hmm. And then... We had some reruns in October and early November. They didn't do so well. People didn't like the reruns, I don't think. They, they want us live. Yeah, there's that. They didn't want to see 2019 us. Well, hey, 2019 us was interesting. <laughs> it was before. Diamond and two braids. It was before the CFPU even was a thing. I kept asking you, do you have a Twitter account yet? Yes, I remember that. I remember <laughs> that. So we've been gone. and we Are you going to even watch? look at the cue sheets? No, I wasn't. Okay. Um, Helping us on the show tonight. <laughs> And every week is the one and only long-suffering Bob Bontrager. <laughs> He's still here, still putting up with our antics. That's right. Now, if, and if we are live. What, what are we doing? Well, I'm reading the cue sheets. Oh, I don't have my... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, 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 I'll chime you in. You can read them too, though, right? Here. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, no. Okay, we are live, and we want to invite you to enter into the fun with us and all of the antics. Add your voice to the conversation. This is the show where we actually read the comments. Yes, and all of our friends are here. Jennifer Bidel's here. Allison's here. Alicia Moss is here. Elaine, Laura. Oh, my gosh. Alexa Kramer. Sylvia. Cub Scout Pack 300. I don't think I've seen that handle before. Jenny, um, Jenny's getting inky with it is here. Yeah. I'm telling you, All people peeps. are here. Yes. Okay. So tonight's moderators are Jennifer Bidel. And then we now know how to say her last name properly. And Alicia Moss. We spent like two seasons calling her the wrong last name. I know. Such a mess. <laughs> hey, Jeremy Webb is here. And Auntie Linda, which means Uncle Jeff is somewhere nearby. Yes, you guys. Okay, so this is your turn. I'm going to just read the cue sheets now. Oh, something new. But I'm going to jump in in a minute. (laughs) Ain't nothing changed. Support the show by liking our page, giving us a thumbs up, sharing the show out. I said it last last season. I'll say it this season. Share it with a friend or share it with an enemy. (laughs) We don't care. Just share the show. Share the show. It could make things with your enemies really fun. But hey, it would be educational as well. This helps us overcome shadow banning because the shadow banning is real and it's painful. So, um, yeah, the more you interact with the stream, the more that it forces big tech to get the stream out there and, you know, share it on your page and also share it in your DMs or emails and that sort of thing. Sorry. Now, we've been gone. For quite a long time. What have we been doing? What have we been doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Reconciled came out. It's now in print. Woohoo! Yes. So you And on Amazon. Yes, Reconciled is on is in print version. So we have it in print. And when we travel, we'll always have some with us. And you can also get what it on Amazon. Yes. 
So great for your small group study and all of that. And uh, we're doing other big things. We've been working on our writing our new book. That's what we've been doing. We've been working on our new book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's due to the publisher at the end of the mar at the end of March. So please be praying for us as we're trying to finish that up. Oh, honey, pray for me. Pray for me. Okay. My my starting my points. Are done. Pray for me. I need all the prayer. Y'all want to extend a hand? Go ahead and pray for me. Look at this. We need to pray for Emma because Emma Hopkins just said it's two in the morning here in the UK. I'm going to be tired in church in the morning. Girl, what you <laughs> do is you just put your head down forward. I'm not saying go to sleep in church, but if you need like to just a blink extra long, just blink a little bit with your head down and act, you know. I'm just saying, just if you just like this for just a little bit, won't nobody know, girl? Won't nobody know? We are so glad that you're here, though. That's true. All right. So this show is brought to you by Family 210 Clothing. You can go to the Center for Biblical Unity page. Click on the big merch button at the top. We have three new designs to tell you about. I'm wearing one of them tonight. Our new, newly designed one. I go this way. Race, one people, one savior. Um, we re redesigned our Center for Biblical Unity shirt, and uh, All Shades are beautiful, one of my favorites, and the future is male and female, which is kind of a riff on the feminist trope of the future, the future is, is female. female. Yeah, you guys, wear, wear our shirts, and then just be a walking billboard for truth. That's right. Like, you know, you don't even have to say anything. Just bam, here it is. Start a conversation. Yeah. Okay. All right, so, so what are we doing? We're talking about fascism tonight. Yes, yes. Now, fascism has been in the news. I don't want to say so much like this month, but over, I would say the last two years, like we've heard and seen different, um, different tweets or people posting yeah. different comments, like big name politicians yeah. who are like, that's fascist. Yeah, you know what I mean, it, it's definitely uh, springing up a lot more. I'm hearing it more. And uh, I just want to share a couple of tweets just to kind of set the stage here for why we wanted to do this show. This first one is from uh, the gal who's a representative in Minnesota. Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar. That's Her name was escaping me. And she is a Muslim, I believe, uh, from Somali. And this is a tweet, I think, all the way back from uh, 2020. Bob's going to put it up here. Um and really drawing some connections between the election and ending the rise of fascism. So I guess if you voted Republican, you voted for Donald Trump, you would be a fascist. I'm kind of reverse engineering that there. Yeah, that's and, what um, she's saying, I think. Uh, there's another one here I wanted to show. This was from a recent event um, at a college, I think up in the Pacific Northwest. I thought it was North Dallas. Oh, Dallas. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Uh, some young conservatives. It was a young conservatives of Texas event that they had at University of North Dallas. And they were having a speaker there who was a father who lost custody of his trans child. And they had some so-called radicals show up and pound tables. Bob's going to scroll down. We're not going to turn on the, the, um, the uh, audio because it's a lot of bad words. It's not that kind of party, people. <laughs> But they were basically pounding the tables and screaming out over the speaker. Um, and so that made me wonder, like, OK, so is protecting my child from gender ideology now 
fascist? I mean, I guess it could be. It, I don't know. When you create a bucket, kind of depends you on your throw anything in it if, if it's your bucket. I guess. So I wanted to get like, all right, we got to get somebody on the show who knows historically what in the world fascism actually is. And then we can talk about how it's changing, what's happening, and all of that. So we got my uncle, Uncle Dr. Carl Truman. And let me tell you why I call him uncle. Now, I call him uncle because I really, really, not to say that I don't love Uncle Carl, but his wife, Auntie Katrina, like you want to talk about a boo in my heart? She, She a boo in my heart. So back in 2021, at the Colson Center, um, Wilberforce Weekend, I was with Elisa Childers and she was like, oh my gosh, that's Carl Truman. And I was like, oh my gosh, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, how in the, where do you live? What rock have you been under? And I was just like, I don't, I have no idea. And she was like, well, go say hi. And I was like, why? And she was like, no, you just, just go say hi. So he's standing next to John Stone Street. I don't even know if he remembers this, but I walked up and was like, hi, I'm Monique Dusan. He was like, hi, I'm Carl Truman. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, like, then we went out to lunch the next day and we talked about critical race theory and all of that. And since then, I feel like I've just been hounding them every day. They just can't get rid of me. Getting pictures of his grandkids and all oh, kind of things. Oh my gosh, yes. But um, so that is that's how we started our journey together, me and Uncle Carl. And now he just has me, and he can't get rid of me. <laughs> but if you want to talk about someone who is extremely knowledgeable um, on basically everything. He's the one. And so I thought, and you thought too, that he would just be a really good addition to this conversation on fascism. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Well, hello there. He's kind of spooky. He's in the dark. Yeah, you're looking. The sun went down. You're you're looking like you. This is Western Pennsylvania. We're in (laughs) the middle of the night here. (laughs) I have all the lights on, but they don't seem to be. Let me see if I can put a bit of more of a. You you look like you're. My head tends there to... You there go. you go. Now we see you. Now, you, now you're there. We, we don't yes. want you to be like a spooky person. Um, no. Okay. Um, so for the four people watching this right now who don't know who you are, uh, Dr. Truman, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction of yourself and, and your background and expertise? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm Carl Truman. I teach at uh, Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. It's a Christian liberal arts college. Uh, I'm in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department, but I teach a lot of my uh, work on the the, hum- the humanities core. Married to Katrina, two sons, as you already mentioned, uh, uh, beloved granddaughter Emily and uh, a niece, beloved niece, uh, Monique Dusan. <laughs> yeah. uh, before I was at Grove, I did a year at Princeton University on the James Madison program. And though I'm a Reformation uh, person in background, 16th, 17th century, uh, these days, much of my time is spent talking about identity politics and uh, how uh, particularly the sexual revolution uh, has emerged historically as a phenomenon and how it's affected how we think of the world around us. So would you say that you're a historian or a theologian? How would you characterize yourself? Well, I keep being called a theologian, but I'm not a theologian. I don't have a single theological qualification to my name, which will not come as a great surprise to anybody who's ever heard me speak about theology. 
Uh, I'm more of a historian. I would say an intellectual historian, a historian of ideas. Okay. Now, I want to make sure to mention your book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And um, if this is, I actually bought this book for my daughter when she graduated from college. It's a big book, but she's very into um, studying and learning more about 20th century philosophy. And it's a great overview of kind of how we got here. But this book is not for sissies. It's not. Um, so, and, and just so, uh, Dr. Truman, knows, sissies is an American word for oh, whips. Yes. I know it's, it's also an English word. We have, <laughs> this, this is a cross-cultural yeah. uh, conversation. Yes, but it's a good book, but it is dense. I mean, you have to be in it for the long haul. But there is yeah. an, an abbreviated version available that's called Remi refresh my memory. Strange new world. Strange new world. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. But that, yeah, it's it's good. And you're now those aren't the only books you've written. Like I had to do some digging in some history and I was like, oh, yes, he has quite a few other yes. books as well. All right. OK, so we're going to be talking about fascism. Can, starting out, can you just give us like a definition of the word fascism? So we're all on the same page. Yeah, like yeah. kind of classically, how has it been un understood? Well, I think there are probably three Three ways we can think about fascism or about the way the term is used. I think, first of all, there's a it's used as a general, we might say, term of abuse. Uh, and interestingly enough, George Orwell, in a 1944 essay, What is Fascism? notes that towards the end of the Second World War, he's writing in 1944, uh, the term fascism has really lost any really precise meaning and has become essentially a a pejorative catch-all for throwing at political opponents who don't like. And I think we see that today a lot in, on sort of Twitter and the internet. The way fascism is typically used there is not a particularly precise technical definition. It's more of a, an, an insult, a pejorative. Second, I think there, is, you know, there are certain uh, specific political parties uh, historically that one would identify as fascist, uh, most obviously, of course, uh, the party of Benito Mussolini uh, in Italy uh, after the First World War and, of course, going up to the Second World War. Mussolini was self-consciously a fascist. Uh, and in Britain, you had the British Union of Fascists. Uh, Sir Oswald Mosley was the leader of the BUF. And, and closely connected, you have Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist Movement. So we can actually say that fascism has a specific partisan political definition. I think the way that it's 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 typically used today, and you gave, a, I think, a quotation from Ilhan Omar just before I came on, fascism is typically used to refer to any perceived politician or political movement or social or cultural idea that opposes the tenets of progressivism. So fascism has become, it's lost its technical partisan meaning. You no longer have to be a member of a fascist party to be a fascist. You simply have to oppose the, uh, the perceived progress of society in order to uh, merit receiving the term today. I think I've seen myself referred to, for example, as a fascist online, which is a a little odd for somebody who, you know, last time I voted 24 years ago was Liberal Democrat in the United Kingdom. 
not exactly a bastion of fascism, the Liberal Democrat Party. So if the definition now is kind of whoever is against progressive ideas and politics, it seems like that would explain why conservatives or people who uphold conservative ideals and principles are being called fascist. When Mussolini or Hitler were deemed fascist, is that because they were conservative? Was that because they were against progress? What were the distinguishing features that made them fascist? Yeah, now that's an interesting question. I think it takes us to I try. the heart of, in some ways of, uh, of what I would consider to be the, the rhetorical game that's being played. Because when you characterize somebody today as being a fascist, you're essentially saying they're right-wing and anti-progress. Uh, if we go back to the fascism of Mussolini or the national socialism of Adolf Hitler, uh, neither of those movements are conservative. Uh, both of those movements, in some ways, are predicated on uh, not returning to the past, nor preserving the present. They're predicated on forging a future uh, by force of will, if you like, that radically breaks with and remakes the past. So Nazism and fascism are not actually conservative movements. So when a conservative is characterized today as a fascist, I think there's a, a clever rhetorical game going on that what you're trying to do is, is characterize conservatives as connected to what I would regard as pretty radical and in a sense progressive, i.e. forward-looking and forward-moving movements from the early 20th century that we all intuitively know are very, very bad, if I could put it that way. And of course, what it also does is it, it allows the progressives to distance themselves from the kind of tenets of early fascism, whereas I would want to make a case, and I will do as this discussion goes on, make a case that some of the the hallmarks of fascism are also the hallmarks of modern progressivism. That actually the old right-left divide doesn't really work on this issue. And that what we actually have is a, a rhetorical game being played between different forms of authoritarianism and totalitarianism. So when we think about fascism, this is this is fascinating. I'm just sitting here. Yeah. I need to have my notebook. <laughs> I'm just taking notes. So when we think about Hitler, I think about and Mussolini, I think about fascism as being some a version of a government that is highly authoritarian, dictatorial, mm -hmm. managing movements and processes of its people uh, of its citizens it, and maybe a way of of coming at the definition and helping us understand it is to differentiate fascism from communism or, or socialism, socialism because those movements or or government systems also seem to regulate a lot of freedoms of people and movements and and structures and production lines and so 
I'm not even sure how to differentiate between fascism and, and communism or socialism. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you're putting your finger there on a very important issue. I mean, I'm indebted actually at uh, this moment to, to the work of the, he's an, he's dead now. He's been dead over 30 years. An Italian philosopher, Augusto del Noce, who was an an analyst really of, of political shifts uh, within the 20th century. And his work has been picked up by my good friend, uh, Aaron Keriati. Uh, Aaron has an article actually out, out on the web about the, the correspondences between fascism and communism that I think is extremely helpful. And one of the points that Del Noce and, and Aaron uh, make is that precisely the kind of totalitarian and authoritarian pathologies that you're pointing to are things that communism and uh, fascism hold in common. We, we can't really distinguish them on those points. There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, uh, one, historically, of course, uh, uh, fascism and communism have a common root. Uh, it is not uh, incident, coincidental that uh, Benito Mussolini is a communist before he becomes a fascist. Uh, there are certain parallels between Marxist philosophy and fascist philosophy, not least uh, their essential moral relativism, not least their iconoclastic attitude towards the past, not least their uh, concern to be liberated from the constraints of the past that bind the, the two things together. Uh, one of the things that Aaron has done is pointed to the uh, the, the interesting relationship between uh, Mussolini and Lenin, uh, that, that Mussolini was always looking at Lenin to see what Lenin was doing in order to shape his own policy uh, uh, and his own leadership style uh, within Italy. Uh, fascism and, and communism both reject any kind of higher sacred order for organizing society. It becomes a matter of historical relativism and of remaking society based on the human will. So uh, I, I think that the, the idea that we can clearly distinguish in historical reality, communist and fascist regimes, is uh, it, it's impossible. And this, of course, is is what makes that uh, you alluded to the uh, the screaming of fascists of that poor man who'd had his uh, lost custody of his child because of the trans issue, uh, closing down uh, open discussion, closing down freedom of speech by the use of aggressive, uh, anti-democratic and violent means. Both communists and fascists do that. So it's very interesting there that you have the language of fascism being hurled at this poor man by a group who are using precisely the kind of uh, political techniques resting upon precisely the same sort of totalitarian philosophy that the fascists themselves represented. So what would what would you say then? This is helpful. So a few few threads I heard you say there just to restate for our, our listeners. Um, one is that both governments kind of see themselves as the, the, the moral end or the telos of the government. Like there's no God or higher authority above them. So they're built on functional naturalism or atheism, but also that they restrict 
speech that um, they might restrict uh, certain freedoms and differences in thought and perspe- perspective. So, so then I'm, I'm just still left over here wondering, like, is the difference between fascism, is it more like nationalism? Because the, the common perception of Hitler and Mussolini is that, well, those are far right um, governments and that promote nationalism, whereas communism, socialism are considered more popularly to be, well, those are on the far left. Yeah. But what I'm hearing you say is those, that might not be the right way to think about this. Yeah, I don't think that the, the, the sort of the right left division is, is a helpful way at all. Uh, I think in some ways, a better way of looking at this is attitudes to democracy and democratic process, in which case both communists and fascists are not on board with basic democratic principles. Uh, the, the question of nationalism is an interesting one. Clearly, uh, Mussolini and Hitler are open in, in, about their nationalism. But if you look at the the split between uh, Trotsky and, and Stalin, for example, in the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin is really the man who wants to do socialism in one country. There is a strongly nationalist dimension to Stalinism. Look at how he treats the Jews. Look at how he treats other peoples within the Soviet Union. There's a strongly nationalist dimension to uh, to Stalin's approach. And that's actually an interesting phenomenon in a lot of communism across the world. The, the idea that you could build a transnational working class consciousness that would lead to world revolution, it's never worked. Where the communists have proved powerful and strong, it's been the places like Vietnam, for example, where they've been able to capitalize on nationalist or ethnic sens- sensibilities uh, and consciousness. So I'd say in practice, uh, Communism, and when I say successful communism, I mean communism that's been able to take control of a country, uh, has typically done so at a national level, partly by appealing to uh, national sensibilities. So then when when we look at what fascism has historically been, but then today we see that it's basically just the word that we throw out to the bad guy, what are some of... Like you said, like a pejorative. Yeah, a pejorative, yeah. Yeah. What are... Go ahead. I was going to say, it's just, it's a way of... If you can put the label fascist on somebody, you've essentially discredited them. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to listen to them anymore. Because it's like saying, well, you're just Hitler. Yeah, Yeah. it's a classic fascist technique. You close down discussion by labeling somebody a fascist. You know, you you label somebody a Jew or a Jew lover as a fascist, you close them down. So it's it's a classic fascist technique. So you, what you're saying is that fascism in technique may not have changed in, in regards to totalitarianism, in regards to shutting down conversations and things like that. It's just being used differently. Yeah, I think uh, you know some of the most fascist organizations in terms of method and approach and attitude. Uh, are the Antifa groups in the United States. They may call themselves anti-fascist, but they want to burn it down. They have no respect for established institutions. They want to close down free discussion. These are all traits of fascism. So I I don't think that the left-right divide is a helpful way, really, of thinking about fascism today. So Antifa, the movement that has 
the words anti-fascism in its title, your proposal is they're actually acting in fascist ways by closing down free debate, by engaging in disorder and chaos and that sort of thing. Is, is, that, is that your claim? Absolutely. I and mean, when you look at, uh, look at the techniques that Mussolini and even more so Hitler used to close down opposition, um, violent disruption of meetings where ideas were being promoted or discussed with which the fascists and the Nazis disagreed, uh, shouting down the opponents, not bothering to meet them with arguments, but meeting them with intimidation. These are the hallmarks. These are hallmarks of a fascist political movement. And Antifa, I think, is one of the, uh, uh, the great exemplars of that in the United States. They're not the only ones, and I certainly wouldn't want to say there aren't so-called right-wing groups that engage in, in similar practice. Uh, but for me, fascism isn't, isn't a matter of right or left. It's a matter for how you think about the world, how you think about other people, how you engage in the political process. Boy, this is, this is interesting. So how would we know if a government, our yeah. government, is starting to drift into fascism? Into fascism? Mm -hmm. uh, what would be some of the telltale signs that, that we might recognize and say, yeah, no, wait a minute, this, this isn't how we do things because we're a, you know, a constitutional republic. We're, we, we historically have First Amendment. We believe in the free exchange of ideas, that there should be a competition of ideas and the best ideas will make their way to the top. Hmm. How yeah. do we engage or how do we be on the lookout then for a government that seems to be drifting into fascism? I think there are various things. Uh, um, suspension of the Constitution would be one of the most radical and, and obvious ones. Um, closing down of democratic institutions, undermining of democratic institutions, engaging in a pattern of behavior or, 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 or propaganda that, uh, that delegitimized uh, democratic and constitutional organizations, all of these things. Uh, now, that's not to say that, you know, was Abraham Lincoln a fascist because he suspended the Constitution at one point? It's not to say that, uh, there, that there aren't very exceptional emergency moments where emergency measures may be necessary. But a more and more routine use of states of emergency in order to suspend the rules, the typical norms of accountability, in order to push forward certain policies all of these things, I would say, uh, threaten democracy, threaten transparency, and point towards a kind of fascism emerging. What would be an example? Give us a few examples of democratic institutions. Like, let's put some little bit of legs on that to 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 know what it. What are we talking about, really? Well, in America, you have the, the branches of government. You have the executive branch, the, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. I would say consistent behavior to undermine the authority of one or more of those branches uh, might be the way to go. We've seen, of course, with the last two elections, the election of Donald Trump and then uh, the election of uh, Joe Biden, uh, attempts made by the opposition in both cases to call into question the legitimacy of the election. Now, People are always going to do that kind of thing. But if we were to see a government starting to really act 
upon those kind of allegations without substance. That would be an undermining of the democratic institution at that point. If, for example, the president were to start declaring states of emergency routinely in order to bypass going through Congress, uh, that would be another example of, of such a thing. What about um, having a disorganized election system? Uh, it could be. I mean, I, I'm like, I'm thinking I, about I, Hitler's election was kind of that was a little suspect. You know, it, it was like how because the claim always says, well, he was, you know, a duly effect elected official. But I, it seems to me like I, I'm just wondering what role elections play in yeah. tipping us off on that issue. Well, Hitler's a little interesting because, of course, it isn't so much his election as the state of emergency he declares after the Reichstag fire right. that really does with German democracy. Uh, and I would also add that there are historical contexts there in that Germany does not have deep and strong. Germany as a nation has, has only existed for 60-odd years. It doesn't have deep-rooted democratic institutions. Come to America and we talk about disorganized elections. I, I'm more inclined to think in America... Uh, it may be just chaotic incompetence that leads to disorganized elections. Question is, what do you do with that? And what's been interesting to me is that it seems that the democratic institutions have been able to handle the chaos. Uh, we've not had a situation where a president has effectively suspended Congress because of what's gone on. That would be the Hitler move. So uh, certainly disorganized elections could leave one vulnerable to fascism. Uh, I don't see it as yet being something that is particularly threatening uh, America. I think, but on the, I think he's the, a little more optimistic than I am on that issue. But on the like the day to day, the every like because I, I don't necessarily know how many people are thinking about fascism in like light of or how many people on on the like the social justice side, the critical theory side, I don't know that they're necessarily looking at, you know, oh, did they shut down Congress or, you know, things like that. But they're calling fascism because of the request or requirement to get rid of certain books in schools. And that's coming from the more conservative end. So, for example, things like not reading um, The Hate You Give, books that are to me, even if it if it wasn't, um, you know, upholding a certain propaganda that I, I know it's trying to push certain themes within the book aren't appropriate for certain age children. But I think this like on the ground, this is where this comes in, in this call of um, of like, well, if you're on the right, you must be fascist because you don't want this book to come in. Is there warrant to that? Like, is is there a a strength to their claim or yeah. is that just like still throwing things out at people just to be, you know, pejorative or mean? I mean, I think there are a number of things that your, your question raises there, Monique. First of all, on critical theory, I would say that in a lot of strands of critical theory, uh, you see precisely the kind of delegitimizing of democratic process that I've talked about. You know, critical theory uh, would say, many critical this way, democracy is just a smokescreen, that there is no real freedom, that democracy is really a smokescreen. Well, what's that doing? That's calling into legitimacy democracy. So one could make the, the case that there is a, an incipient totalitarianism, authoritarianism mm. creeping in 
through critical theory. That's a slightly, that's just an aside comment I want to yeah. make. Uh, the, the, the question you're asking is, well, first of all, I think we need to ask ourselves, are the, the, the suspension, the, the banning, so say, of these books, in what way is it being done? Is it being done in a way that is transparent? Is it being done in a way that respects the, the constituencies involved? Uh, secondly, I think we need to we need to say, well, schools, for example, it is not appropriate that in a school every child get access to any book. I don't think that copies of Hustler should be on the shelves in an elementary school library. I don't think copies of Hustler should be on the shelves in a library anywhere, but certainly not in a five-year-old's uh, uh, elementary school library. So we all know that critical decisions have got to be made, not only in accordance with budget, but also in accordance with pedagogy and what's being taught about what uh, what is uh, kept in, in on the shelves in school libraries. Then I think you get into the question of what is the purpose of education and how does the uh, philosophy of education shape the kind of books that are in these schools? And that's where I'd want to engage the people who say, well, you're a fascist because you don't want book X on the shelves. I don't want to say, no, it's not fascism. That's my vision of education and pedagogical strategy. You tell me yours, I'll tell you mine, and we'll see if we can discuss the pros and cons of our two different approaches. So I would say, again, that you, know, you don't want, uh, uh, you know, Johnny has two mothers or something on the shelves. And you're, Does it make you a fascist that you object to that? I would say absolutely not. Uh, that's nothing to do with democratic process whatsoever and everything to do with your vision of what education is. How you go about making the schools accountable for their educational philosophy. That's where the question of fascism comes in. And at that point, it's a question of is what's being done transparent? Is it in accordance with the Constitution? Uh, is it in accordance with respect for parental rights, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's do a couple questions here from from our friends on the stream. Um, we're going to go to YouTube first or Facebook? Yeah, we're going to go to YouTube. Um, there's a question from Elaine. Uh, she says, did the track to eliminating God from public foundational life happen slowly or quickly? Rise in Triumph explains it slowly, but from their anti-God view, did Christians cling longer than expected? I think Elaine means like cling to their beliefs in God longer than expected. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. Was it Ernest Hemingway was talking about going bankrupt? And he said, you know, you go bankrupt in two ways. First of all, you go bankrupt slowly, and then you go bankrupt very, very quickly. And I think that's what we've seen in the United States, as opposed to, I think the process of secularization in Europe, it's more advanced, but it occurred more slowly. I think what's been interesting in America is the speed at which uh, what might call civic religion has collapsed in the last 25, 30 years. And there are various factors involved in that. I think 9-11 and the way that led to a rethinking of, of the role of religion in the public square. Uh, was one. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to give a, a, a concise and clear answer to this. What I would say is this, though, that the, the experience of the speed of the transformation for many Christians, I think, is what is so disturbing to us. It's disorienting. We've not had time to, to get used to it. 
Uh, Jeff Davis has an interesting uh, comment slash question. Um, would it be an example of undermining a, a democratic institution when, say, the FBI pays Twitter about $3 million to shut down unwanted speech, which now we know from the Twitter files, the FBI was involved in, mm-hmm. in you know, kind of regulating under the previous owners, you know, what speech would be pushed out, what would be suppressed or minimized, would that be seen as potentially, you know, undermining a certain democratic institution of free speech or the First Amendment? What's your thought about that? It could be. And of course, it, it's, not, uh, it, you know, it's not a novelty that governments use their agencies to, to interfere with, with speech. We know that the FBI have been doing this uh, not only for the left, but also uh, for the right for, for many, many years now. J. Edgar Hoover does not exactly have a, a clear record of, of using the FBI for purposes that I think are entirely consistent with the spirit of the American people or the spirit of the American constitution. So it certainly could be seen uh, in that way. And I think, again, we're also seeing uh, this, the question doesn't raise this, but I think one of the things we're now seeing emerging that is uh, going to be problematic for us in, in, in the future is that the real power, the real cultural power in our world does not actually lie with democratic institutions anymore. It lies with the influencers. It lies with social media. It lies with internet companies. It lies with big business. And one of my fears is, you know, we can talk about the constitution, we can talk about democratic process till the cows come home. But if the real power lies outside of government, what do we do about that? And I, I don't have any answers to that at this yeah. point. I mean, if the powers that be really don't have power. Well, then... I, I think we're seeing a trend, though, along those lines of more and more powers coming about through unelected officials. Yeah. Political mm-hmm. appointments within the government. Um, people that regular people, we don't even know who they are, but they have a lot of power. I was going to say people just wealthy people like you can look at um what was the guy um not steve jobs bill gates Um, Gates and his whole you know participation during 2020 with COVID and things like that like not not a doctor not a political person but tons of influence and so you can imagine like well if is a you know, what makes you someone who gets to speak into certain things when you're not in government, when you don't technically have a title that would lead to you being able to participate in that way? Well, I also think of like all the research that I've done uh, related to education and public education and the influence of international Planned Parenthood coming in and reshaping education. And um, Dr. Truman might not know anything about that. So don't put him on blast about you know what I'm saying here, but there's we've well documented on the ministry's channel of, you know, the impact of international Planned parenthood and their partnership with UNESCO and the UN and how this is reshaping public education and uh, the moral code in public education. And these things are not secret. It's not a government conspiracy theory. These are things that are out in the open, if you know where to look for them. And to me, those have the potential 
to somewhat undermine democratic processes of, and seem to be successful in doing that in our public education system. Many parents did, aren't even aware that these, these things are, are coming in slowly. They're com- becoming aware, but there are a lot of outside forces that are reshaping definitely and not just in the sphere of education you know you can look at that's just what i know about yeah yeah. but the whole push in gender ideology and queer theory and how you know different influencers come in to be able to push an idea and it will start in academia but then dwindle down to you know the k-12 education system but it's also in your workforce it's also you know in your church it's in the mall you can't escape certain ideologies um, like queer theory that is being pushed everywhere. And so, yeah, it, it's it's not necessarily about the person who is in government. It's not about the, the democratic um, institutions, but about the people who have the either the money, the platform, the influence to be able to push certain concepts, certain ideologies forward. Yeah, I think you're right. And you know, the people who make culture are not the politicians. The people who make culture are the people who make movies, the people who make sitcoms, soap operas, cartoons, children's entertainment. Uh, these are the people, I think, who are shaping the, the psyche or what I would call the social imaginary in which our children are growing up. And uh, yeah, they are unaccountable. And that's, <clears throat> that's why there's a sense in which you know, America has a great constitution. I'm very grateful for the First Amendment, very grateful for the American Constitution. But the American Constitution deals with the powers of government. Uh, the most powerful people in our culture at the moment are not the government. Um, you know, they are not obliged to the Constitution. And that what's, that's what makes our situation so uh, so disturbing. And Bill Gates is a good example, though. You know, I remember at the time reading something about an article on Bill Gates in 2020 saying, you know, the guy can't even uh, deal with computer viruses. Uh, how come we're letting him sort of pontificate right. on, on the biggest virus of our generation? There's a certain irony to to a businessman of, of remarkable success in many ways. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what makes Bill Gates as a, a brilliant uh, designer and marketer of computers, what makes him remotely competent? to opine on on anything else yeah um oh i was gonna say something let's let's do another question here um elaine has a another question question for uh dr truman if i know it wasn't a question for me (laughs) (laughs) if fascism by way of non-government power gets more strength what level of violence or crazy stuff would become more normalized like the brown shirts I think that's a reference under the Hitler administration, but not from a, an official government arm. Like, is that a is that a danger where we have non-officials enacting more and more power over the citizens? Could that undermine dem- democratic institutions and be a sign of drift into fascism? Certainly could. Uh, and again, I think here it comes down to how does government respond to to threats to undermine it. Uh, will it deal with the culprits? Um, I've been, you know, it, it, it seemed to me good that the people who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th have been dealt with by judicial process. Uh, I wish the same could be said about the people who uh, were closing down certain West Coast cities and establishing no, no go zones in 2020. 
the threat to our democratic institutions didn't just come from relatively small and, and frankly, on a national level, pretty impotent uh, right-wing movements. It also came from significant left-wing movements that actually had more of a significant impact on their communities. And I think what we need to see in coming years is consistency. We need to see that the, the law applied equally to all, uh, not just to the miscreants on the perceived right, but also to the, the miscreants on the left as well. Do we need to worry about the American government potentially falling into fascism or um, tiptoeing around fascism today or fascist, fascistic, mm -hmm. fa fascist? Yeah. Yeah. It's today. Um, yeah. I, my friend Rod Dreher of the American conservative has, has drawn a comparison between America and Weimar Germany on more than one occasion in the last few years. So, you know, America is living in its Weimar moment. Those of you who know the history of Germany will know there was a, a short-lived, uh, just over a decade and a half, really, experiment in Germany uh, to establish democracy after the First World War that came, you know, came to a catastrophic end with the rise of Hitler. Uh, I'm not sure that we're in a Weimar moment in America for reasons that I alluded to earlier. I think America has a strong democratic tradition. It has well-established democratic institutions. I don't think they're going to fall anytime soon. Um, I don't think that the January the 6th uh, riot has represented an existential threat to democracy. I think it was wrong. I think it was crazy. But it was never going to topple the government. Uh, we should not be complacent. Uh, I don't think we should say, you know, it can never happen here. Uh, if, if terrible things can happen in other countries, they can certainly happen in America. So we shouldn't be complacent. I don't think we should be lying awake at night fretting about whether America is about to become a fascist nation. Uh, but we should be, be very careful to, to use our democratic uh, rights and uh, exercise our democratic responsibilities uh, in order to, to keep America's democratic institutions healthy and, and accountable. Boy, I don't know. I, I think you're a little more optimistic than, than I am, but I, I appreciate the optimism. I, I have a fairly pessimistic view of human nature and I'm, I'm deeply concerned about us maybe not drifting, our government not drifting immediately into more of a totalitarian state, but I'm pretty concerned when I see things like the World Economic Forum and their vision for the future and how they're trying to suck our country into that vision. And I, that concerns me um, it, because they're wanting to control our movements and tell us, you know, what kind of cars to buy and where we can go and restricting what kind of gas you put in your house. Yeah. And, and what kind of stoves you buy and what mm -hmm. kind of heaters you buy. And um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I know that I am not as smart as you, Dr. Truman, but I am, I appreciate the optimism, but I'm 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 nervous. I do stay awake at night sometimes over these I'm, things. I'm not an optimist, but I have hope. Uh, let I me. Mean, uh, my whole life could be. Oh, there's nothing happens in my life where I can't find a quotation from Godfather One or Godfather Two uh, to, to sort of capture what I'm trying to think. And the opening line of Godfather One: "I believe in America." I, I'm an immigrant. 
Uh, and I have a confidence in America, not that it's perfect uh, and not that it couldn't go terribly, terribly bad. But I do think America is still a free country compared to a lot of countries. And I think that you know, the worst thing we can do at this point is if we despair, despair always leads to paralysis. It really does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I take your words, Krista, very much to heart. But what I want to say is, yeah, let's let's see. We're in, we're in a serious situation. But let's not despair, because if we despair, we're going to be paralyzed. This is a great country. And I say that as somebody who's a, who's a foreigner. I'm not even a citizen at this point. Uh, but I do think that America, the world has not seen the last of America. I think we are, uh, there's more hope in America, I think, than a lot of people give it credit for. I hope that's not naive, but I want to be hopeful. Not a, An optimist just thinks it's all going to turn out okay in the end. That's not me. But I think given what America has been and given the institutions we have, there is hope that we can turn this ship around. I, I appreciate that. I think that for me, like, I, I think there's another possibility available that that all of these difficulties and, and the kind of the ominous things on, on the horizon could it could result in paralysis. But I think it also could result in people getting motivated to be more involved, running for school board, yeah. running for local politics, um, state politics like um, Christians getting equipped and motivated in their worldview to bring their worldview to bear on whatever place in the marketplace that God has strategically and supernaturally placed them. I think that, you know, that's kind of our hope at the Center for Biblical Unity is we're, we're trying to equip Christians where they are to push back, but also to be salt and light in those places and preserve these important institutions. I mean, during the World War II, I think what sustained us were we had strong churches. We had a very strong, I think that was a big pillar of American society was the church. Even if people weren't church people, there was a general consciousness of that, that there was a God and that there was something higher than the government and that there was a hope in that. I think we had a strong military and we had a, a strong national sense of our identity as what it meant to be an American. Um, I'm not as confident in any of those three institutions being as strong anymore. And so I think that that's part of my, my concern. I don't yeah. know. You, I think... The part that you hit on to me, or in um, with Uncle Carl mentioning Rod Dreher, um, I love the book "Live Not by Lies." Um, I think if we're going to have any hope, whether you're a Christian or not, it's mm -hmm. going to require people to be bold. I think what you're talking about during like the Second World War and things like that, we there was a very different America. We had very yes. different strategies. People used different techniques. People weren't getting on the internet and then canceling people wholeheartedly or doxing uh -huh. people. And so I think that leads to your pessimism um, as far as, you know, any hope for our country, I think um, what Uncle Carl is saying is that there's there's still a fight left in America. Mm. For me, I think I'm somewhere in between. like, And that's why it's important for me to continue to call people to boldness, especially believers, because 
And if you haven't read Live Not By Lies, you should really read Live Not By Lies because the point is made so clear. So you can't be a punk. Like you can't just, you know, lie down and roll over because then your country will go to a no good place in a handbasket. You know, like that won't work. Um, But not only that, not only for the sake of the nation, but for the sake of the souls of people who don't believe. And so when we talk about fighting for our country, it's not from this nationalistic point of, you know, and, and some of it might be, no, we don't want to see America, you know, go down in flames or anything like that. But from the faith position as a believer, there is a, a point of truth that I can share with others. And as you're saying, you know, like during, during like the second world war, the, the church was in a different place and the government was in a different place and all of that. Well, I don't think that we can't get back there, but I do think that that Christians have really lost ground. Mm -hmm. And at that point in history, there was a much stronger call from believers and even non-believers who shared pieces of the Christian worldview. Yeah, exactly. I think with the postmodern context and entry, we've lost that overlap. And so it's kind of like, you know, how do we gain some of that ground back? I don't know. It's just kind of what I'm thinking. I'm going to like, Dr. Truman have the last word here. Do you have any reactions to that or? No, I, I, I think probably the distance between us is not that great. I, uh, I think that, you know, if you have hope, then you will act. And I think what you were saying there, Krista, indicates you have hope. You may think the situation is very bleak, but you're clearly not rendered impotent or paralyzed by that. I, I was very influenced. My year at Princeton was uh, a great and watershed year for me in many ways. And one of the things that I most appreciated was watching uh, Professor Robert George, who ran the fellowship program that I was on, uh, watching Robert George operate. And that you know, every week in 2017, 2018, there was some you know, progressive thing coming down the line. And what, what struck me about uh, Robbie was, you know, he'd come to coffee and he'd say, okay, this has happened. Uh, and then he would spend maybe 10 seconds saying, and it's a really bad thing because... But then he'd go on and say, so what are we going to do about it? What do we need to do to counteract this? What are we going to do about it? And I liked the, what I liked about him was, yeah, he's realistic about how bleak the situation is. But he also sees it as his calling as a Christian, not to sit and lament, but to push back. Uh, Now, will the pushbacks be successful? Well, maybe, maybe not. That's in the lap of the Lord. Uh, but if we don't push back, we know what the result's going to be. Yeah, we've effectively sealed our fate at that point. And so what I wanted to sort of press on, on the listeners is, yeah, we're in a bleak situation. Uh, there's much to be grateful for. Uh, I would rather live in America than in Iran, where I'm still free to worship on a Sunday. I'm still free to worship the triune God without fear of being sent to prison or, or worse. Uh, I want to be grateful for those things. And I want to see how those things give me uh, a platform or an opportunity or the energy to respond and to push back on on the negative and bad things that are happening in our society. But one thing we mustn't do, I think, is is give up, because as soon as we've given up, the enemy's won. Uh, It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. That's good. It's good work. Well, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. I know it's late there on the East Coast. It is, but it's been a pleasure, ladies. So it's great to see my niece and great to see you again. Yes. Tell Auntie Katrina I said hello. Now tell us 
as we say goodbye, why don't you tell us what you're working on or what's on the horizon for you? Two books I'm working on. Uh, I'm doing a book for Broadman and Holman on the origins and early development of critical theory, particularly the Frankfurt School. It's going to be a book designed really for undergraduates or first-year seminarians, trying to explain and really expand what critical theory is and its origins, and then offer some critical reflections upon it. And the other book is uh, 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 an examination of the, the impact manifestation of nihilism in modern culture. And that one's for Sentinel, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Should, but the, the critical theory book should be out late 2024, and the nihilism book should be out early 2025. Uh, if you need somebody, you know, if you need to check and balance on your critical theory stuff, I'm your girl. I can't do nothing with the nihilistic stuff, but I got you. You know, Frankfurt, we can go back. We can go back. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this. We really appreciate it. Great to be with you, ladies. Have a good day. Thank evening. you. Talk with you again. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fun. That was. I love him very, very much. That was very nice of him. It's late there. Yes. And he's a he's an early kind of person. Like early he's an early riser, so then early to bed. Um well, that was very yeah, nice especially of him. while he teaches. So yeah, it was so, so good to talk to him. Um I, that was helpful. I I learned some things. It gave me some things to think about. Um, you know, just understanding more about fascism and communism and how to spot it and it's good good yeah. back and forth he said he was grateful for the first amendment i said i'm grateful for the second amendment <laughs> don't play no game this, this isn't that kind of show we got the second amendment just in case things with the first amendment don't go too well <laughs> um okay so we're uh, going... uh, there was something that i wanted to oh. see that i wanted to hit on here um i want to say it was between sylvia and elaine I think Elaine says it's just time to get busy like y'all at CFBU are night and day. And Sylvia says, yes. And so yesterday I had a back and forth with a friend of mine and she was a little discouraged. Um, and she was just like, man, there's so much happening that like it's, it's overwhelming. And so the metaphor that I gave was like, you know, think of it like a giant canvas. Like, let's say you have a hundred foot by a hundred foot or let's say five, like, let's make it ginormous, 5,000 foot by 5,000 foot canvas. And all you have is a can of paint and a, and a little paintbrush. And it's not even a paintbrush. It's like one of them little sponges that fall apart. <laughs> and you're, I mean, if you look at the whole canvas, you're going to be like, man, like, this is discouraging. This is overwhelming. I don't want to do this. Who gave me this little sponge? Why don't I have more paint? Like, you're going to be overwhelmed and then you will end up paralyzed. But if you just thought about the only area that you yourself have to do is like a six by six square. It'll be a lot easier. And so when I hear things like, man, it's just time for us to get busy. It's time for us to, you know, be doing our part and work and things like that. Remember the, the place that God calls you to first is to your family. Remember the place that God calls you to next are those right there in your circle. There's a lot of times when I travel that people will say, man, I can't wait or I need to, you know, grow my platform or I need to do this. And we begin to compare ourselves and mm. look at the bigness of all that's wrong with the world. We have, like Krista was saying, SEL and education and we have DEI and LGBTQ plus stuff and you, you, all of everything that that's happening 
that's that's true. Like there, there is no denying that that happens. Two things to remember is one, that our battle is not um, against flesh and blood, but we have a spiritual battle. That's the first thing. The second thing is to remember where you are called. You are called first right to your own family. And so the bigness of the entire canvas really isn't your business, nor is it your problem. But God has called you, be busy and diligent where God has called you to be. That is where he needs you most. Yeah, it might be like pushing back in your homeschool group. Yeah. Things get get crazy. You know, maybe you get on their board or um, maybe you're in your church. You know, you become a resource person. It doesn't mean you have to be an expert on everything, but people just start to know like, oh, so-and-so, she's a good person I can ask. And she might be able to refer me to, to some resources. Um, so that, that's a good word. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk for a minute about a couple of our sponsors and then we're going to do the tweet of the week. There we go. You don't want to miss the tweet of the week. It's a good one. Y'all it's crazy. (laughs) Our first sponsor. Um, yes. Whoa. Whoa. Our first sponsor is loud. That's okay. There's a lot of buttons over there. there. Oh my gosh. There's so many buttons. (laughs) So grateful for Bob. Um, Our first sponsor is Impact 360. The Impact 360 Institute is actually a worldview program. Now, if you have young people in your life between the ages of 14 to 20, send them over to Impact 360 to deepen their Christian worldview, to understand what does it mean to be a Christian and to uphold a Christian worldview. For younger teens, they have a one-week or two-week summer camp program. And for older students, they have a nine-month gap year program where they will go to Utah and learn how to share their faith. And then they're doing international trip. But it's all grounded in the historic Christian worldview. And your child will grow as a result of being at Impact 360. Check out impact360.org to be able to sign your child up to attend one of their programs. Programs. And we love speaking with our friends at Impact 360. Go twice a year. Yeah. Yes. We're going to speak at the summer camp again this year. Okay. The other sponsor we want to talk to you about is our friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. This is the seminary that Monique and I are actually both enrolled at right now. And we love it because it's quality theological education that is both biblically faithful and affordable. Um, For us, we couldn't relocate, but there was no need because there's live classes on Zoom and it's not just reading and lectures. You have live interaction with your professor. In fact, that reminds me, my professor's watching this. I I haven't forgotten about my paper, Um, but 90% of the BTS faculty are pastors or ministry professionals. This is a little bit on the rare side that you have people that are in kind of, um, you know, in a seminary context and teaching, but also still engaged in active ministry. So I love that part about it. Um, they're not just professional academics, but they also have that ministry heart that really can help you as a student. At BTS, you get all the benefits of a strong academic program without going into massive amounts of debt. It is a great option. Go check them out at bts.education and see if it might be a good fit for you. Yes. Okay. Now I was perusing Twitter earlier today and I'm on Twitter every day because that's every where, day. That's right. Between get, Twitter and Instagram. 
where I get the news. You find her. And that's how I find out what's happening in the race conversation. And then I send Monique 45 messages on on uh, text. Four, yeah, 45 <laughs> messages on text. And then, so she uses my Instagram account because the it's the ministry Instagram account, but it's mine. Um, but on Instagram, she just peruses Corgi videos, people. <laughs> she says <laughs> on the, the CFBU Instagram thing one day, she says, why is the feed nothing but corgi videos? <laughs> None but corgis. Yeah. Nothing but corgis. It's it's the algorithm. All right. So now it's time for the tweet of the week. The tweet of the week. That really is the most. It is. Bob's, Bob's just doing the most there. Okay, so here's the the video. It's a very short video. We're going to watch the insanity, and then we'll have a little It's comment. great. Oh, it's fabulous. It's the best. I love the account, too. Clown World. Are men trash? Cis, heterosexual men, absolutely, especially white men. Weren't you just talking about equality? Oh, absolutely. But we have to have that viewpoint because of how much we've been attacked just by that gender. You know? But you just said that all straight men are trash. Like, that's a pretty big generalization, don't you think? It definitely is. It's not necessarily something I'm going to, like, saying via statistics. I'm saying via experience. Would it be misogynistic if a man said all women are trash? Yes. It's the same way as, like, reverse racism. So in that case, isn't it kind of, you know, misandry for a woman to say that men are trash? Oh, I wouldn't say so. I mean, yeah. So are you a misandrist? Close to, but I'm trying to come out of that. Am I trash then? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Girl, when, she, when he said misandry, <laughs> I was like, I know somebody with that name. <laughs> but then I was like, I think it's misandry, but I was like, I didn't even know that was a word. We're doomed. There it is. This this is some foolishness. I think her brain kind of broke there at the end. Uh, <laughs> brought it back around. So is that what you say about me? Am I trash? Well, here's the here's the thing. What um, was that? What was that? Yeah, right. What was you that? Just walk up and ask a random person a question. Um, there there's a conversation that has been happening. Um, that has to me just now grown to the point where it is like, if you ever made bread and you let the yeast in the dough rise, it's like over the sides of the pan now, like it's just flooding the kitchen entirely. And it's this conversation of heterosexual white Christian men. And I say this as a black woman that the attack is real on heterosexual white Christian men. Um, I'm going to actually do a small review on this new show, Velma, and on, um, what was that movie I just saw the other day? What was the name of it? Uh, it's like not us and them, but it's this um, interracial couple with... Um, I, I forgot it already, but there's a, it's an interracial <laughs> couple and they will, they go to get married and um, the families, one family's Jewish, one family's black Muslim and the black people just treat the white people like they're just incompetent. They basically are trash. And this movie, like it got some traction. It hasn't been out that long. It got some traction and it's just normalized. It is a normal for someone of color to be able to say, well, of course you're dumb because you're white. 
or of course you're whatever because you're just a white man. These were in the in the new Scooby Doo kind of adult cartoon Velma. That those are just blatant words that Velma says. Now Velma in the in the adult cartoon is portrayed as being a person of color, and so it. But it, it, this is the conversation that's on the street. And so to hear this woman on the street, it doesn't surprise me that she would say, yeah, you're trash. Now, he's not white, but he does. He probably does fit all of the other criteria. Yeah, that was interesting. She says, well, I'm not saying this on data. It was so transparent. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this based on data, just my own personal lived experience. OK. Yeah. But so I mean, what 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 is more important now? data or my truth yeah my personal experience which my we've, personal experience we've gone over it on the show many times but i just was like wow this is such an interesting video but i think what's interesting to me about what she says from the standpoint of engaging non-christians uh, who have this perspective first of all if you're a christian and you have this perspective you gotta start reading your bible more like you are mixed up in some heterodox beliefs. So if you sound like this and you name the name of Jesus, I want to gently uh, admonish you to start engaging with the actual Bible more. Um, But I think that what's interesting to me is that she is assuming a standard of fair treatment. Like she's probably assuming that a good man is somebody who doesn't engage in rape, for example. A good man is somebody who treats others um, with fairness and without partiality. Mm-hmm. She doesn't understand that she's borrowing those ideas mm-hmm. from the biblical worldview. If the biblical worldview doesn't exist, there's no reason for a man not to rape a woman. Now that sounds extreme, mm-hmm. but that's, there's no moral universal, like moral compass. If God doesn't exist, if we're just left to engage in my truth and, and my own personal opinions and, and what's right for me, there's, there's no, there's no reason to, to think that I ought to treat people fairly. And so while on the one hand, she wants to be treated fairly, then she, she, on the one hand, she wants something. And then on the other hand, she takes it away by saying, I'm not going to treat you fairly. Um, It's, it's an interesting kind of self-refuting position Mm -hmm. that she's in. So I want to refer people to your article, the myth of reverse racism is the principles that you outlined there. Yeah. are applicable to this kind of mindset, whether we're talking about racial issues or gender issues or whatever. So this, this is a very, uh, when you hear things like this, like laugh inside if the person's standing in front of you. The devil is a whole lot. I would say laugh right in their face. <laughs> now I know that's mean. Y'all should pray for my spirit, pray for my heart. But at, like, at some point, oh, this this is where I come into conflict and I feel like the Holy Spirit be having to wrangle me back in. He just, come on, boo, come on back here. Because in reality, I want to be like, you going to tell the wrong white person that you evil, dumb, and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. 
you somebody gonna catch it. Well, at some at some point, I don't, I don't think that some people are gonna keep taking that. But I think as Christians, what we want to do is when people say foolish things in front of you, I, I want to encourage you as a Christian to not just fall into the foolishness, not just to immediately laugh at them. People say some foolish things on my social media. But what you have to learn how to do is slow things down, slow the conversation down. You're going to be laughing inside and talking to the Lord like, this is some foolishness. This is a mess. But give me some words, Lord, of how to engage this person, maybe how to um, ask a question, get curious, try to help them find their way. I think that guy was doing a great job, even though she was saying ridiculous things. He was using strategic questions to highlight the inconsistencies in what she was saying to the point that I think he put a little pebble in her shoe that she had to stop and think, yeah, now wait a minute. Is that, is that what I am? Is that what I'm saying? Is that what I, you know? So I think he was providing a great example of how to engage somebody like that. Yep. Don't ask me what to do when people, (laughs) when people come for you, don't ask me, I am not the one to ask. I mean, I'm trying to grow in it, but I'm at today, February, fourth got 10 days to your birthday um yeah 10 days but i'm not the one to ask because yeah no 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 but that's okay we we all grow we all grow but i think it's a good word like you know you don't have to you don't have to immediately come out your face but i do think that some like people are going to get tired of this this constant down putting like this and this is what i said in 2020 that you know it the the script is just flipped from the I, 60s yeah. And that level of of racism because this is racist. It is racist. Oh, like uh, people 100%. are like, this is that's not racist. You black people can't be racist. Yeah. We're just telling no, it like it is. No, no that's it's, racist. It's racist, it, and it, people are going to get tired. Yeah, and they are. And Christians will have to continue to have cooler heads prevail and continue to call out the foolishness. Um, all right, so we're going to see you in two weeks. So we're yeah. still working on the book. We're Pray not going to. We're not going to be back at full all the things capacity probably until April. But we didn't want to leave you hanging until then. So we're going to have like all the things every couple of weeks. A slow on ramp every other week or so. So in two weeks, we're going to be back with Dr. Doug Grutice. You won't want to miss that conversation. We're going to be talking more about standpoint epistemology. And what standpoint epistemology is, is this idea that there's like black truth and white truth and female truth and all of this kind of thing. We heard Dr. Grutice give a paper at the Evangelical Society, uh, Theological Society meetings last fall. And we want to kind of um, bring that to you at a lay level to help you understand these things even more. So watch for us in two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. Mm. Next week, we're going to be in Seattle. Um, and doing some trainings up at a Christian school. And so we will see you back here in a couple of weeks. Look at my uncle Jeff coming through for me. He said, Monique, I take it from me. I see that you are and have grown a ton. Tears. Oh, tears. Thank you. But you guys, I'm sorry. I don't know what it is about me, but there is that fight in me <laughs> when, when people come for the family that I'm just like, don't, don't come for my brothers and sisters. Don't do it. Don't do it. So, but there is a way biblically to be able to oppose the enemy. Right. So, all right, guys, that's it for us this week. 
Have a blessed rest of your weekend. Happy Sunday. And we will see you in two weeks. Good night and God bless you. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week. Thank you.